Thank you for the introduction. There is one thing you might have said. I don't often mention this, but once upon a time, I actually appeared on the cover with a few other theologians of Christianity Today. And I'm just very grateful that it was not the swimsuit edition. <laughs> Thanks for coming back. Um, in my first talk, I described the seminary as a textual community whose mission was to form a reading culture that would bridge the dichotomy that exists in some places between biblical scholarship and systematic theology. And together, forming a reading culture creates disciples who are literate citizens of the gospel. And then in my second talk this morning, I tried to recover a thick understanding of the literal sense by calling attention to what I think is a critical role of frames of reference that help us to determine what the biblical texts we're reading are really about. And I made a case for recovering a scriptural social imaginary, for reading the Bible with an eschatological frame of reference that knew how to follow the way the biblical figures run ultimately to Jesus Christ. And that's one of the things I wanted to say about how mere Christian hermeneutics are transfigural. My definition of the literal sense in terms of divine authorial discourse is what I call the formal principle of mere Christian hermeneutics. But this afternoon, we're going to look at the material principle, the subject matter we grasp when we read the literal sense of scripture rightly. And it has to do with the knowledge of God. And instead of frames of reference, I want us to consider the big overarching framework of understanding. The big picture for understanding the address that God gives us through scripture and the way humans should receive it in faith. And I call this big picture the economy of light, which has to do with the wondrous works of triune enlightenment. In other words, the economy of light is all about how the Father, who is light, communicates the light of his self-knowledge in the light of his Son through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest that reading the Bible theologically has to do with reading in this great economy of light. And the purpose of the Bible in the first place and of reading it is so that we will see something of the light of Christ. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Speaking of light, and in the book I'm, uh, from which I'm drawing these lectures, I devote a whole chapter to examining one verse, Genesis 1-3, let there be light. It's a good place to start, right, if you're talking about the economy of light. The story of light, how it came to be, what it is, what it does. This, to me, helps me come up with a theological framework for thinking about biblical interpretation. So in the chapter on Let There Be Light, I ask two questions. Does God literally speak light? And what is light, 
literally. <laughs> I don't get bogged down with the question of the length of the six days. What I think is of more importance, theologically speaking, is that God literally created, that God literally speaks, that God literally acts. Literal speaking and acting by God. These are the two truths essential for reading the rest of scripture rightly. God speaks, God acts. These are the twin cornerstones of mere Christian hermeneutics and of an evangelical theology that seeks to do justice to the God of the gospel. You see, the focus of Genesis 1-3 and of the whole chapter, really, is God saying. God saying, as indicated by the daily refrain, we see it six times, and God said. It's a crucial theological point. If God does not do things with words, we would still be ignorant of God. We wouldn't be able to say much about God that wouldn't be simply speculation. God's purposes would remain inscrutable as far as we're concerned if he did not speak. But we can go further. If God does not literally speak, then most of what he's supposed to have done in the Bible would not have been possible because much of what God does in the Bible concerns his speaking. In addition to let there be light, God gave the creation mandate to Adam and Eve. He promised to make Abraham a great nation. Try promising without using words. It's very hard. <laughs> he lays down the law by which Israel was to keep the covenant. Through the prophets, he prophesies the Messiah. And in the New Testament, on the basis of Christ's work, he declares us righteous. We can't get our doctrine of justification by faith without God's literal speech. God declares us righteous and so forth. There could be no covenant, neither old or new, without an initial, without an initial covenanting act. Try making a covenant without language. The covenant is an oath that God makes upon his own being, as it were. So does God literally speak? Well, here I would want to say we need to remember the distinction between literal and literalistic. Luther says, not that God actually spoke, for he has no mouth, tongue, teeth, or lips as we do, but he who created and formed the mouth of all men can also make speech and the voice. Such an important point he's making. You see, God literally, really and truly speaks, but he doesn't do so literalistically or univocally in exactly the same way that men and women do with tongues and teeth. God doesn't need that to speak. So God says, let there be light, but not necessarily the way I would say it and just did say it. When God speaks, things happen. And so this is the key point. God really speaks. He speaks his mind, and things come into being. But again, without this literal emphasis on God speaking, 
we would not be able to say anything about God ourselves. It wouldn't be simply speculation. It's a very important point. So that God is able to form and enact intentions and make a difference outside himself, that he's able to create a world and everything else. This is what agency is all about. What God does by speaking and in his word made flesh is what the Bible is literally about. It's about God's speech and action. We fail to interpret scripture literally unless we read the biblical story as an account of what God has done in space and time after creating it. So that answers my first question. My, my second question is, what did God create when he spoke light into being? John Walton, an Old Testament scholar, thinks the relevant frame of reference for answering that question has to be the cognitive environment of ancient Israel. And he reads the creation narratives as concerning function, what things do, rather than material origins, what things are made of. And so in that framework, he simply says, let there be light means let there be daytime. The, the light functions to create day. He says Genesis isn't interested in light the way a physicist might be. Well, I can't rehearse the whole history of interpretation of Genesis 1-3. One fun fact, um, in his commentary on Genesis, Luther says that the rabbis forbade anyone under the age of 30 to interpret Genesis 1 for others. Too difficult. But that excuse probably wouldn't work for avoiding Genesis exodus in, in your Hebrew class. Don't, don't use it. So how do I think we should interpret Genesis 1-3? Again, we're trying to understand the economy of light, the way God, who is light, shares his light with others. We know from John 1, 1 John 1-5 that God is light. But we didn't want to say that when God said, let there be light, he's creating himself. That's not what is in view, as if there were a time when God was not. No, the light that God is attests to his majesty. God's light is his triune glory in himself, as one theologian puts it. The church father Athanasius picks up on this concept of light to explain how the father relates to the son in eternity. The son is the radiance of the light that God is. He's thinking of Hebrews 1. Athanasius says, the Son is the expression of the Father's person and light from light. So that God is light means that God's life in himself, the imminent trinity, is already luminescent, glorious. But in his freedom, God is able to share his light with what is not God. That God creates light by speaking it into being demonstrates, I think, both God's transcendence, his light is wholly other, and his eminence insofar as he publishes his perfection in the things that light makes known. 
I'm trying to say that God is light and his glory is his inshining, but also his outshining. When he says, let there be light, the life that he is in himself and his self-knowledge is declared to the world, to all creation. Summing this up, let there be light marks the moment when the God who is light in himself decided to make known something outside himself of who and what he is. The creation of light marks the moment when the triune God begins to act out. Not gentlemen start your engines, but rather let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, commence our operations, our work ad extra. Hope you're following what I'm saying. What literally happens when God says, let there be light, is that the triune God establishes an ordered means of communicating the truth and life he is in himself to others. It's the first step in the economy of creation, yes, but also of revelation. We're saying that God has established an economy of light, an arrangement by which he makes the light that he is shine out to others. It's a declaration of iridescence, a statement of intent to be and to work in time in a way that corresponds to his eternal being. Last attempt to make this clear, we could paraphrase Genesis 1-3 by saying, let there be a making known. Let there be a making known. You see, throughout scripture, light is a thing that enlightens, that reveals and teaches truth. I like the way the Protestant reformer Ocolampadius, whose delightful name means house lamp, <laughs> I like the way he puts it. God created light so that his works might be made clear. You may think I'm straying from my topic, but I don't think so. I want to suggest again that the Bible and its interpretation are ingredients or elements in this economy of light. If we really want to understand what the Bible is, we need to go back to creation and that first statement, God is deciding to share his own knowledge of himself with creatures. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So what I'm calling the material principle of mere Christian hermeneutics, the light of Christ, God's shining forth, that undergirds the formal principle, this idea of literal meaning. First, because as I say, the Bible itself participates in the economy of light. It's a divinely commissioned, set apart, creaturely auxiliary, a literary photon. And what that photon carries is something of God's own self-knowledge. That's what revelation is. God's making himself known through the words of scripture, literary photons, particles of light. And then second, because the material principle guides our decision as to which frames of reference we should use 
to read scripture in order to see the light that it's communicating. So multiple frames of reference are allowed and encouraged, as I said earlier today, but only insofar as they contribute to the illumination of scripture's subject matter, how the God who is light begets children of light. That's why he's revealed something of himself to us. He wants us to walk in the light as he is the light. So if you've got that big picture framework, and I've only sketched it quickly, I can now talk about my main interest today, this afternoon, Jesus' transfiguration as a, an important clue to this larger economy of light. Now, you may think this is an odd choice. What does Jesus' transfiguration have to do with biblical interpretation? Well, minimally, we have to interpret it. It's a text that has to be interpreted. And I'm going to do that in a moment. But I'm also thinking of it a little differently. I'm going to suggest that the transfiguration offers a perspective as to what biblical interpretation is all about. To ascend Mount Tabor with the disciples is to gain a precious vantage point, not only on who Jesus is, but on the whole process of reading the Bible theologically. That's my, my hunch, my hypothesis. I'm not alone in this, at least I'm not entirely alone. In the history of Christianity, there's one other person who's made this suggestion. Um, I'm developing a suggestion from Jerome, taken from his commentary on Mark 9, Mark's account of the Transfiguration. Jerome, like several other church fathers, compares the work of biblical interpretation to climbing a mountain. And he says, those who cannot climb the mountain have Jesus down below, according to the bare letter only. But to have Jesus down below means you cannot see his shining clothes or face. Philosophers can't make Jesus' clothes or face shine, says Jerome, because their treatises are all of the earth. If you read the law and the prophets and don't see Jesus, it's because you haven't ascended the mountain. But by way of contrast, Jerome says that we Christians are standing on the mountain with Moses and Elijah when we understand the scriptures spiritually. What's fascinating to me about this is that for Jerome, what he calls spiritual interpretation, he's getting his bearings for this from Jesus' transfiguration. He says, take any prophetical witness. If you consider merely the letter, there is nothing shining in it. In contrast, what I'll call transfigural interpretation reads the biblical letter in and for the light of Christ. Now, Western theology has largely neglected Jesus' transfiguration. Dr. Wellam indicated that he didn't do much with the transfiguration in his wonderful book on Christology. That, too, is a venial sin. It's forgivable. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's unfortunate, not just what he didn't do, but what Western theology as a whole has not done. 
because we've missed the role of Jesus' transfiguration in this broader economy of light. And my suggestion then is twofold, that the subject matter of theology, the gospel of God, the light made known in Christ, the light of God made known in Christ, this should dictate the way we approach our reading of scripture. The subject matter was always control the way we approach it. And so I also want to suggest that the transfiguration, far from being a marginal or weird footnote to Jesus' person and work, may yield a key insight into this subject matter, the light of the knowledge of God in Christ. So Jesus' transfiguration, I think, has a central place in the economy of light. In fact, the transfiguration is arguably the most important event in the history of light between creation and consummation. Also, the placement of the transfiguration in the gospel narratives themselves between Peter's confession and Jesus' crucifixion, that location is very suggestive because it associates Jesus' person Peter's confession, you are the Christ, and his work, the crucifixion, but it, it also suggests there is glory in that connection because as we'll see, that's what happens to Jesus at the transfiguration. Now the transfiguration also presents challenges, both as concerns the event itself and the way it bears on biblical interpretation. The exegetical challenge is to say, what does transfiguration mean? What literally happened to Jesus on Mount Tabor? And everything in my proposal hinges on how we describe transfiguration. Because if you think about it, it would wreak havoc on the literal sense if transfiguration meant substantial change because that would change the literal meaning of the letter into something else altogether. So I don't want to go there. Let me suggest then that the shining of the light in Christ during his transfiguration, the light that shines from his face is to the body of Jesus as the spiritual sense is to the letter of the text. Let me run with that for a while. And what interests me in this is the nature of the change to Jesus' face and clothes. Is transfiguration similar to transubstantiation? Sounds like it. Problem with that is in, trans in transubstantiation, uh, the literal sense, the bread of discourse, as it were, would undergo a radical change and become something it previously was not. And then biblical scholars would be right to call foul, because in that case, the search for the grammatical meaning becomes a wild goose chase. So I don't want to go there. But what is happening in Jesus' transfiguration? Well, it's important to remember that the account of Jesus' transfiguration appears in all three synoptic gospels, Mark 9, Matthew 17, and Luke 9 and each time in the same context. After asking the disciples who they think he is and getting the answer, the Christ, Jesus then predicts his death and resurrection 
adding, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And that's the moment that he then takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain only to meet Moses and Elijah and to be transfigured. There's a show of light, a voice from a cloud, and then it's over. What just happened? Well, I have time to give you just a few highlights. Each of the synoptics does depict a dramatic change in Jesus' external appearance. His face and clothes shine and become dazzling white. Mark says they become white as light. And the authors use a variety of terms, shone, sun, radiant, dazzling, to express this climactic moment in the economy of light. Matthew and Mark use an interesting Greek term, metamorpheo, for the word transfigured, or at least our English translations often say transfigured. The Greek is metamorpheo. Now, at first glance, that does not bode well because metamorphosis seems as though Jesus is changing into something that he wasn't. That's not a good model for interpretation. We don't want to say that reading transfiguredly changes the literal sense. That's not what I want to say. If then, if then this uh, transfigural interpretation was literally a metamorphosis, then the literal sense would become other, alos, and that's the road to allegorizing. You see, in allegories, the text means other, alos, than what it says. And it would make no sense to claim that the literal meaning was the allegorical. So, hear me well. Whatever transfiguration means, it can't mean change into something else. That's not what's going on. Now, modern biblical scholars typically use one of two different frames of reference to make sense of what happened to Jesus. The apocalyptic and the epiphanic. For those who read with an apocalyptic frame of reference, the meaning of Jesus' transfiguration is that the disciples are getting a preview of coming attractions, a vision of Christ's resurrection, or some would say of his parousia. And one commentator says that on this view, experiencing the transfiguration is like looking into a crystal ball. <laughs> You're seeing the future. And this reading makes sense of Jesus saying that some of his disciples wouldn't die until they saw his kingdom. So that's one frame of reference, the apocalyptic. The other is the epiphanic, a frame of reference that focuses on the transfiguration, not as an anticipation of something future, but as a revelation of his present status as the divine son of God. There's an epiphany. We see who Jesus really is. And so on this view, Jesus doesn't become something different than what he was before, but for a moment, he appears as he truly is. His shining face radiates light, not because he's talking to God, that's what happens to Moses when Moses meets God on Sinai, but Jesus' face radiates God because the light is coming from within, and the disciples get to see that for the first time.
Well, here's an example of where I think we need both frames of reference in order to give a thick description of what's literally happening in Jesus' transfiguration. There's no contradiction, you see, between reading the transfiguration is anticipating something future and as revealing something in the present. And isn't this what we might expect from the New Testament eschatology, which concerns both the already and the not yet? A tension that Arthur Michael Ramsey admirably captures in his work on the transfiguration. He says, on the Mount of Transfiguration, a veil is withdrawn and the glory which the disciples are allowed to see is not only the glory of a future event, but the glory of him who is the Son of God. So I'm suggesting we use both the present and future frames of reference, both the apocalyptic and the epiphanic. Jesus now on earth is the heavenly Son of Man who will come again at the parousia in the future. Now let's not forget that voice that speaks out of the cloud. It's God's voice and it declares as it did at Jesus' baptism that he is indeed the son of God. It articulates what the light radiating from Jesus' face displays. I like uh, Dale Brunner's comment in his uh, commentary on Matthew on this passage. He says, in the Synoptic Gospels, God the Father talks directly to earth only twice. And both times, God says exactly the same thing. The single most important fact that God wants the church and the world to know. So we're told that Jesus is God's son, but the transfiguration shows Jesus to be his father's son, light from light in human form. Now, descriptions matter, particularly when what we're describing is a key turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. Some frames of reference uh, are unable to see Christ as the light, um, or listen to him as God's first and last word. And frames of reference that can't see Jesus as the light, I think they fail to do justice to the evangelist's literal sense. But by way of contrast, the grammatical eschatological approach to literal interpretation that I set out in my second talk can and does this. It recognizes Jesus as, as the light. It enables us to see the transfiguration as a display of Jesus already not yet glory. It's an event that identifies Jesus as both the son of God and the son of man, the man born to be king, but also born to suffer and die. Interestingly, Luke alone uses the term doxa or glory in connection with the transfiguration. The disciples saw Jesus' glory and the two men who stood with him. The key elements of the transfiguration, the shining face, radiant clothes, the voice out of the overshadowing cloud, all are signs of Jesus' present, future, glorious status. But what does glory look like? What did the disciples literally see? 
I think the evangelists found it difficult to describe. That's why they use so many different words, many of which are connected with light, however. But I think it's because the disciples witnessed an eschatological event. They witnessed a moment of eternity breaking into time. And this is why Jesus' face and clothes assume an otherworldly brilliance. It's anticipating his glorious lordship in the age to come. Well, I mentioned that uh, Jerome was my historical precedent. He's the one church father in the West who discusses the transfiguration most thoroughly. And he also explores the idea that the shining face and garments of Jesus correspond to the words of scripture. Just hold that thought. His main point, though, is that the transfiguration does not involve an essential change to Jesus' human nature. This is an important point, and Jerome takes pains in showing that the transfiguration is unlike pagan metamorphoses. Jesus does not exchange his physical body for some airy fairy body. And I, one of my tasks in doing research is I had to read the whole of Ovid's metamorphoses to see if Ovid said anything like what we read in the New Testament, and he doesn't. They always, his metamorphoses always involve some kind of radical physical change. So Jerome says this, as opposed to an Ovidian metamorphosis, Jerome says, when the splendor of the face is shown and the brilliance of the clothing described, it is not the substance that is removed, but the glory is changed. The transformation added splendor. It did not make his face disappear. The literal face, the literal sense remains. The transformation is one of glory. And I think Jerome was right to guard against the temptation to over-spiritualize the event and to over-spiritualize spiritual interpretation. So this is a crucial part of my case for transfigural interpretation. We don't lose the face. We don't lose the letter. The transfiguration does not change the letter. It glorifies it. Now, Mark 9 is also the text for Jerome's exposition of spiritual interpretation. And so his comments on the transfiguration become a homily on Christian exegesis. And it's because of this parallel that he sees between Jesus' body on the one hand and the body of the biblical text. He doesn't want to spiritualize either body. The spiritual reading he advocates does not overturn the letter. It goes deeper into it in order to see the light of Christ, the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. I hope I've said enough to at least give you a glimpse of why the transfiguration is an important moment in the economy of light. I mentioned that Jerome goes on to compare Jesus' garments to the scriptures and their shining to scripture's literal, uh, spiritual sense. And then he says, only interpreters who ascend the mountain and read in faith will be able to perceive the light of Christ 
shining in the words of the biblical text. So another quote, for him who follows the word of God and ascends the mountain, for him, Jesus is instantly transfigured and his garments shine exceedingly. But as I mentioned, those who read the letter with a purely historical or imminent frame of reference, Jerome says, they see nothing shining in it. Readers who stick with the unillumined letter are not following the way the words go because they go towards the light. Now some of you, maybe most of you, may still not be convinced that this one episode in Jesus' life, the transfiguration, deserves pride of place in a mere Christian hermeneutics. So I want to call another witness to the stand at this point, John the Evangelist. Now you may think, why? <laughs> it's counterintuitive, I know, because there is no account of the transfiguration in the fourth gospel, despite the fact that John was one of the three disciples with Jesus on the mountain. I think the reason why John fails to include the event is because the whole fourth gospel is a transfiguration narrative. That's my claim. Again, I have at least one person who agrees with me, <laughs> George Caird, New Testament scholar. He says, for to John, the whole ministry of Christ and the cross in particular was the revelation of that glory, the glory that Jesus has when he's lifted up on the cross. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? The, the transfiguration doesn't figure in the fourth gospel, not because John did not know about it, we know that he did, but rather because he understood his, its meaning so well, he internalized the meaning of the transfiguration into his whole gospel. Now, to show this conclusively, you'll have to invite me back next year. <laughs> I would need a whole three Norton lectures to do that, but it's because I traced three lines of evidence. The prologue, Jesus' I am sayings, especially I am the light of the world that we have in the fourth gospel. And then, more interestingly, the Johannine motif of misunderstanding the signs that Jesus performs, which in almost every case John suggests has to do with a failure to see Christ's glory. But do take a look at the prologue of John's gospel. It's a, it's a mini summary of the whole economy of light. It starts off with John's riff on Genesis 1. He tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. We know that word was light. But then he tells us in verse 9, the true light was coming into the world. And then in verse 114, he says, we have seen his glory. If there were a footnote <laughs> to 114, I think John would say, I'm talking about the transfiguration. Peter, I could have enlisted him as a witness too, because in Peter's epistles, 
In 2 Peter 1.16, he clearly says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And there's a clear reference to the transfiguration in Peter as well. So this isn't just me picking an event in Jesus' life out of the hat and making hay with it. I think there's some good textual basis warrant for making it so central, even if Western theology has largely neglected it. So we're at the point now where I need to give you theses. So I've raised some problems, I've made some suggestions, now I shall wax bold. I want to try to draw my argument together in five summary theses. First, the transfiguration has hermeneutical significance, not just for understanding the identity of Jesus, but for getting to know what biblical interpretation is and how it works and why it's important. Now surely, yes, the transfiguration is first and foremost a revealed confirmation that Peter's confession was right. This is the Christ, the Son of God. But alongside this epiphany, there's the apocalypse, this vision of the glory into which this Christ will enter after his passion. And so the, trans the transfiguration occurs and gives us a key to the understanding of Jesus' person and work. But it's also more than just another event in Jesus' life. I'm not saying it's a saving event, don't get me wrong. I'm suggesting that it's a frame and a filter that puts the gospel into the right focus. It certainly looks back to the law and the prophets. That's why Moses and Elijah are there. And it looks forward to Jesus' exaltation. It bridges heaven and earth. If scripture is a map that leads to salvation in Christ, the transfiguration is part of the map legend, the little key at the bottom that tells us how to read the map correctly. In revealing, Jesus, uh, in revealing divinity in Jesus' humanity and the exaltation that follows his humiliation, the transfiguration gives us a key to reading the Bible as a unified whole, a lens through which we can discern the theological and the historical. Thanks to the presence of Moses and Elijah, we come to see that the earlier exodus of Israel from Egypt is a type of a more glorious exodus that Jesus is about to make. Now, of course, as a frame of reference, the transfiguration comes into its own only after the events that it anticipates have happened. When the prophetic content of the transfiguration is fulfilled though, the transfiguration becomes a kind of authoritative commentary that illumines and enhances the meaning of the events that it has prefigured. Second thesis. The transfiguration suggests an analogy between the human body of Christ and the body of the biblical text, a correspondence that I think is grounded in their both being divine accommodations of the one living and active word of God. In other words, both Jesus and the scriptures are truly and fully human, but just as there is more but not less to Jesus' body, and to the literal meaning of the biblical text, we need to say the same thing. There's more but not less to the meaning of the literal sense than their humanity. Beneath the human surface, 
beneath the skeleton and the skin in the one case and written letters in the other, beneath the human surface lies something divine, rendering both Jesus' face and the literal sense of scripture conduits of light, channels of light. As God reveals his light through the body of Jesus, so the divine voice shines through the human voice of the human authors. So I'm drawing a transfigural analogy. Jesus' body is to his glorification what the letter is to its spiritual sense. And this analogy should encourage readers to approach the Bible primed to hear the voice of God shining in the bright canonical fabric that clothes and presents Christ. This third thesis is important too. Transfigural interpretation does not change, but rather magnifies meaning. The transfiguration, you see, doesn't change the nature of Jesus. It lets the disciples see what he always was, but was hidden under the veil of his humanity. Remember what Jerome said, when the splendor of the face is shown and the brilliance of the clothing described, it is not the substance that is removed, but the glory is changed. So again, what does it mean to see Christ's glory? That prediction that Jesus made that some would not die until they had seen the kingdom of God is relevant here. So I think the disciples saw this already not yet reign of Christ. They saw the eschatological is, who Christ is, already not yet. But to see this as that, to see the eschatological is, they needed a biblically informed, typologically rich imagination. And you get that from the first kind of transfigural reading that I discussed this morning when you follow one figure to another across the canon. But my emphasis here is that reading transfigurally means not changing the letter of the text, but rather seeing it in all its glory. To read transfigurally is to magnify meaning in both senses of the term magnify. First, to intense clarity, to make it brighter, and then to extol, to cause the letter to be held in greater esteem. So it's not a matter of census plinier, but perhaps of census splendidior, a more splendid sense. How much more glorious is the letter when we read it with this frame of reference and then discern the light of Christ in the letter? So I have, a, as I said, I have a few allies. This one may surprise you. J. Gresham Machen says something that is fully in line with what I've just said. He said, the writers of the Bible knew what they were doing when they, were, when they wrote. But then he goes on, I do not believe that they always knew all that they were doing. They did not know the full meaning of what they wrote, but they did know part of the meaning. And the full meaning was in no contradiction with the partial meaning, but was its glorious unfolding. That's all I've been trying to say. 
Fourth thesis, transfigural interpretation is distinctly Christian. It's not a species of allegorizing, and therefore it belongs to special rather than general hermeneutics. As its name is, so is its nature. Transfigural interpretation derives from the transfiguration of Jesus. There's a theological premise to this way of reading. Whereas allegorical interpretation locates meaning or truth in some other system of truths, transfigural interpretation locates meaning and truth in Christ. And the movement is both vertical and horizontal, salvation historical and eschatological, which means we don't leave the letter behind. So my thesis is what earlier Christian readers named the spiritual sense is best understood as the glory of the literal sense. And then finally, fifth thesis, transfigural interpretation is from faith to faith, requiring readers to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened by the spirit. I'm suggesting then that transfigural interpretation involves a different way of seeing, hearing, and reading than the kind of reading that uh, works with earthly frames of reference alone. Again, many of those earthly frames of reference remain helpful because the Bible's words are human. We have to do justice to the letter. We don't leave it behind. And yet, to read the Bible through a transfigural frame of reference is to be more attuned to the eschatological realities in the story of Jesus and Israel that hold the whole story together. And then the last thing I want to say about transfigural interpretation is that when we're reading transfigurally, we're reading with a doxological interpretive aim and interest. Remember I said that interpreters always have an interest that makes them read the text in this way rather than another. I think we should read with a doxological aim. We want to magnify the literal sense and its divine author. And it may work a variation of sorts on Augustine's famous rule for reading, where he encourages readers to choose the interpretation that most fosters love of God and neighbor. That's certainly an important rule. The doxological rule that's part and parcel of transfigural reading is similar. Choose the reading that most glorifies God and that most promotes godliness, which is to say Christ-likeness. And that brings me to my final point then, and where we began these lectures, with the notion of the seminary as a textual community trying to form a particular kind of reading culture for a specific purpose, namely to equip you, students, to help others to read the Bible rightly. We want, you to form, we want to form you into readers who can help other people read the Bible. The aim has been to read the literal sense for all it's worth. And this means going beyond the verbal or grammatical sense all the way to its theological and eschatological referent, the subject matter. I have argued that transfigural interpretation is a matter of grammatical eschatological exegesis that reads in canonical context for the divine discourse 
And that includes understanding what the biblical authors are talking about. We're reading for the light of Christ. And when we do it, we're employing an eschatological frame of reference that allows us to see more than just the bare letter. We want to see the light in the letter. So the transfiguration figures in this story as a kind of hinge between the old and the, the old age and the age to come. Again, I'm not saying that the transfiguration should be included in the nexus of saving events. I'm saying it's a hermeneutical event, not a soteriological event. It's an event of hermeneutical significance that reveals who the son is, explains the son's mission, shows how the son's mission relates to the law and the prophets, and then shows where it's going, his lordly reign. Now, transfigural readers, those who read in the way we've been discussing with a grammatical, eschatological frame of reference, must read with unveiled faces. We read forward as we trace the economy of light across the biblical figures to Christ. We read backwards as we employ an eschatological frame of reference, knowing how it ends, to see glimmers of the light in what it was before. And in directing the reader's attention to the light of Christ in the letter of the text, transfigural interpretation aims for nothing less than the transfiguration of the reader. Because if we're focusing on the light of Christ, that cannot help but transform us. And the goal of mere Christian hermeneutics is to form a reading culture that will produce readers who can behold the glory of the Lord in the letter of the text. And if we can learn to read in this way, the seminary will be a textual community that forms readers to read with unveiled faces and in doing so, the kind of readers who will be transformed as they contemplate Christ's image, transformed from one degree of glory to another. The last word has to go to one of my mentors, the Apostle Paul. And this verse of his, I think, sums up what I want to say about the transfiguration of the reader I have a whole chapter on, on that in my book, and I'm only here at the last moment coming to it. But Paul said it better anyway. <laughs> For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Thank you. <laughs>